We're in Exodus chapter 24, but I'm going to also want you to turn over to Deuteronomy 27 in just a minute. There are a couple of things here that I want to uh, to do. Now, some of this is going to uh, require you have the handouts and things from the past, and that may not be the case with everyone. First of all, just to remind you, uh, this is a copy of a map I'd given you a number of weeks ago. But where we are now in terms of uh, the geography of the book of Exodus, uh, the children of Israel under the leadership of Moses and Aaron and so on are now in the very southern part of uh, what we today call the Arabian Peninsula, okay? So uh, they have uh, left Egypt. Obviously, we've covered this earlier, but just quickly remind, they have left Egypt, those remarkable um, plagues and judgments of God, and they traveled on the east side of the Gulf of Suez, and now through the wilderness, and are now camped here at the base of Mount Sinai. Uh, it's called a number of things in the Bible. It's also called Mount Horeb, or the Mountain of God, but it's all referring to this uh, mount here on the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. That's just the geography. Second thing, again, relating to a handout I had given you uh, several weeks ago, the the law, what we call the law of Moses or the Mosaic law or just the law in, in the way it is structured is really based on a suzerain vassal treaty. And I've given you that handout. I don't know if you remember that. What God is doing is he's taking a an, an, an existing framework that was very, very much of uh, very familiar with, very much a part of the ancient Near Eastern world and saying to the children of Israel, I am your suzerain. You are my vassals. Now, I'm using the language of the treaty because as we had uh, five or six times I've talked about this, what God is establishing is a theocracy. Do you remember that word? And I, I drew some of that on the board. Uh, and that is just really important for us to just keep remembering that. What God is establishing is a theocracy. There is no king. There are no political officials. It is God, the Levitical priests, and then the people. That's it. Now, that will change in the history of Israel for a lot of reasons which are way beyond our study in the book of Exodus. And so this suzerain vassal treaty, this framework that the law is establishing, is not something that would be foreign to them. What's foreign to them is they don't have a king, like every other civilization around them did. Their king, if you will, is the Lord, is Yahweh. And so he, as their suzerain, as their Lord, as their master, as their king, whatever uh, term of leadership you want to use, he has the right to establish the various obligations they have to him. And so in that handout that I gave you, I gave you the basic framework, and the material we've been studying has followed that. We have been for the last... Oh, five, six weeks, we've been in part four, where we've just gone through all the stipulations of this, uh, of this treaty, of, of this framework, of this, this obligation they have to God. And it starts with the moral character of God, the Decalogue, and then the detailed, uh, detailed stipulations. And we've gone through some of that, and as I, again, I'm reviewing this real quickly, but what God is doing is he's establishing a civilization 
that is based on order and accountability and personal responsibility and equity and justice. This is to be a just society. And we talked, you know, we went through all of that to illustrate how the Lord is doing this beyond, actually far beyond anything any other civilization in the ancient world established because it reflects the moral character of God. And um, so what I want to look at now, the, the invocation of the witnesses, part six and part seven, um, is what I want to look at right now real quickly. And the, every treaty of the ancient world had a curses and blessings section. If you, as my vassals, do not obey me, these are the curses that will follow. If you do obey me, these are the blessings that will follow. Following? So Deuteronomy 27 and 28 particularly and we're going to look at this really briefly. We're not going to um, go into this in detail. I just want you to know this is where you go to look at that. What is God saying in this covenantal relationship, this, quote, treaty, close quote, relationship? There are curses and there are blessings. And it, it distills down to a simple sentence. If you walk with me in obedience, I will bless you. I will bless you beyond measure in the land that I am promising to give to you. That's the land of Canaan, or the promised land, or called a lot of different things in the Bible. But if you do not walk with me in obedience and dependence, I will curse you. In other words, I will judge you, I will discipline you. And so what what you see here is, I, I don't know how else to say this, but with crystal clear clarity, God is laying out their covenantal obligations to him as their Lord, as the one who delivered them out of Egypt, who was about to fulfill the Abrahamic uh, promises of land, seed, and blessing, and who is, uh, is about to take them into the land, the land of Canaan, which he promised to Abraham 500 years earlier. And now he's about to fulfill all of it. And as I've said uh, numerous times in our study, um, everything about the law that God has established, every aspect of it is to cause them to think about him. To cause them to think about how gracious and merciful and magnanimous uh, he has been in choosing them to be the vehicle of his blessing to the world. That's how they were to look at this relationship. And as as long as they saw it that way, you see the richness of the blessing God wanted for them. You see it in the, much of, not all, but much of the life of King David, some of the great kings of the monarchy, or even in the times of some of the good period in the judges, certainly under Joshua. But as they step away from that, uh, that's when they get into trouble. So I've, I've said a lot of things by way of introduction. So are you sort of with me? This is, how, this is, this is the proper way, and by proper only, I'm saying from the way the scriptures present it, for us to really look at the law. And so under these covenant obligations, the fullest expression of this is in Deuteronomy 27. Yeah, I just had a question Please. About geography yeah. and the timing. Is this, they're at a place now where it's been like 50 days from the time they begin the Exodus. Is that correct? No, it would be it would be a bit longer than that, I think. Okay. Uh, 
because they will be at Sinai for over a year, actually. They, I mean, they will be at Sinai, at the base of the peninsula there. By the, let's see, uh, it's, uh, I'm not sure, Woody, I could probably. About seven weeks or something. Yeah, it's, um, and now by the time they're at this point, uh, where chapter 24 is, uh, we'll come back to that in just a minute. Um, it's probably closer to, uh, to four months that they've been there because a lot has happened, but uh, it's a little difficult to be honest with you. Once you get them there, it's a little difficult to be precise when all these events are occurring and, and assign it an exact day or month. But it's pro- we're probably getting close to four months now since they've left e- Egypt. Okay. So what should we as contemporary Christians, what's the applicability of what we're studying now to our lives? What well, should we look for? Yeah, I, as we talked a little bit uh, the week last week and the week before. The, um, the system of law that God was setting up, for the, and by, I mean particularly the civil um, and, and uh, covenantal obligations they had to one another and to uh, their governing authority is, is something we can learn from. And indeed, I think um, our founding uh, fathers of this nation, as well as Western civilization as a whole, one of the reasons if you ever study law or even go into courthouses or into uh, in the United States Capitol in Washington, D.C., you see the Ten Commandments. Why? Because that is the base, that is the foundation of a system of law, a system of justice, that's based on equity, that's based on accountability, that's based on personal responsibility. That's what God is teaching them. Now, you, you know, you and I don't have to worry about boiling a kid in its mother's milk, which is something we looked at last week, one of the more unusual. We don't have to worry about doing that, but should we be concerned about justice? Should we be, cur- be concerned about issues of restitution, a society a system of justice where personal accountability is a core value, and we're going to build everything around that. That's what God was doing to the children of Israel. For, I should say, for the children of Israel. I would argue that's still a pretty worthy principle to instill as a basis for civilization and equity, that everyone matters. I mean, one of the things you see, it's really astonishing. One of the things you see as you study the the law, and this applies to everyone. The king isn't absolved from this. That's why David, when he sinned, it's going to, we're fast-forwarding 500 years from where we are here, but when David sins, the most important thing he's concerned about is justice. I need to be dealt with justly because I have defied God's law. But he appeals to God's grace and mercy in doing it. So, Jim, they're wonderful, they're wonderful principles. And so... To me, even what we're looking at here real quickly, these um, curses and obligations, we're not in that kind of relationship with, with God because the law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But in the new covenant, what if we choose to walk in defiance of the Lord in our relationship with him? Remember, the, the relationship is now parent to child. You know, He's a heavenly father, we're, we're his children by faith in Christ. Um, does that mean we can do whatever we want in our relationship with him? Or will he discipline us 
as he disciplined Israel. Same principle. Different specifics, but the same principle. Will he bless us if we walk in? Yes. The the line that you don't want to cross is the line of blessing of prosperity, Mm -hmm. theology that God wants every Christian healthy, wealthy, and wise. Wise, yes. Healthy, wealthy, depends. So you, you have a society that can move predictably based upon these earlier ones. And, and, uh, and, and today, uh, if we violate the spiritual aspect of that, we lose our fellowship with God. And I, you're mentioning David wanted to be reconciled back to yes. him. Yes. Because even though the law may not come down on him, his his fellowship with the Lord was broken. It was, and it was a very, very serious break in that relationship. And Psalm 32, just using David as an example, Psalm 32 gives us an indication of how horrible that year was for David. It was a horrible year in his life when he was out of fellowship with God, when he was trying to cover everything up that he did, and of course was not successful in doing it. Um, so that's how I would answer your question and your, your comments as well, Fred. I mean, the ap- application of this for you and me 2017 is not let's refrain from boiling a kid in its mother's milk, which is that one we looked at last week was an illustration, but uh, is God interested in the United States being a just society? I would say he is. We are not in a covenant relationship like Israel was in the ancient world. But if we expect, you have to be very careful in how I'm saying this, if we want to experience the common grace blessings of God, you you understand what I mean by common grace blessings? Not, Not the blessings of salvation, that's individual, that's the individual person, but the common grace blessings of God, then we follow his ethical standards. We follow and, and it try to adhere to his values and his virtues. If we defy them, then he has so made his world he, that it's just the way he's made everything. We will see consequences of defying his basic common law. And uh, that's one of the tragedies, at least in my opinion, as a Christian, that's one of the tragedies of what I see happening to American civilization. You know, we are not a Christian nation. I mean, I don't, anybody that could argue that in 2017 has blinders on. But at the same time, we have a heritage that is rooted in a, what one historian used to call a Christian memory, where there were, there were many, many things that transformed how America developed. I'm reading a book that just came out by Francis Fitzgerald called The Evangelicals, Shaping a Nation. It's a very, very good book. Now, it's a, it's a big book, and you know it may be one of those that you want to get started. You know. But what she does, and she, from my understanding, I've seen her interviewed. She, I'd read one of her earlier books. Um, she is not coming from a Christian perspective. As far as I know, personally, she's not a Christian. But she has, master, she has masterfully understood the religious and particularly evangelical Christian component of the development of this country. She starts with the First Great Awakening, which is a really important place. So it's really, it's really a very good book. 
And she's just demonstrating, not with no agenda. She's just doing history. She's saying, you cannot ignore the development of this nation if you ignore the, the contribution and the importance of evangelical Christian faith. It has dramatically shaped. It's about everything that has occurred until the, the post, post-World War II. Then it started to really change. A lot of reasons for that. So now I'm getting way beyond where we are. We have yet to look at the Word of God, and it's five minutes after 12. Now, that's not my fault. That's your fault. No, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. no but I, you know, we get out these great bunny trails. But let's, all I want to do with 27, 28, and, and a little bit of 29 is we're not going to read all this. It's long. But I do want you to see this. At the beginning of chapter 27, now remember, this is Deuteronomy. We're in Exodus. This is Deuteronomy. This is written to, the book of Deuteronomy is written to the second generation. Because remember what happened to the first generation? They wandered around the wilderness for 40 years because they disobeyed God. Remember? So this is the second generation. And they're just about ready to cross into the promised land. And Moses, this is what Moses said. Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people saying, keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. Now, that's just so you can then write on them. That's all that means. And you shall write on them all the words of the law when you cross over into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. And you've crossed over the Jordan. You shall set up these stones concerning which I command you, on Mount Ebal, you shall plaster them with plaster, and there she will bur- shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. No wield, no iron tool. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. You shall offer burnt offerings there. Now, notice it's future tense. When you cross over the Jordan, when you begin the conquest under Joshua, this is what I want you to do. And when you look at the book of Joshua, and they cross into, cross into the land, and they conquer Jericho, and they conquer Ai, then Moses leads them to fulfill this command. And one group stands on Mount Ebal, and one stands on Mount Gerizim, and Shechem is in the middle. I, I've been there. It is a natural amphitheater. I mean, it is, it, it, the geography of this is absolutely remarkable. And they go through everything that's in these chapters as they review the curses and review the blessing. Then they together, all the people, including the tribal leaders, the clan leaders, and all the people, take a covenantal obligation and ratify this treaty, ratify this agreement. Because they're now in the land. And they're saying, we promise to live this way. And so they just rehearse. And when you go into the book of Joshua, it reviews, they do exactly what Moses tells them to do. They stand on, one is on Mount Ebal, half the tribes are there, the other one is Mount Gerizim, there are two mountains, and right in the center is the little town of Shechem, and Moses stands there. It's it's amazing, not excuse me, Joshua stands there. It's an amazing thing. They fall exactly and precisely to the letter what Moses commanded them to do. And it just, chapter 27 is is a series of the curses. Curse anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. Curse anyone who misleads a blind man. man. Curse anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner. I mean, just go on and on and on. And then chapter 28, 
the first uh, 14 verses, summarizes the blessings that God promises to them if they walk in obedience with him. And then verse 15 and following are the curses for disobedience. And I want you to notice verse 36 of chapter 28. God says, I'll be patient. But the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. When does that happen? Mm -hmm. In the exile. The northern kingdom goes into exile in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom, Judah, goes into exile in 586. How long is the southern kingdom in exile? For 70 years. And see, that's one of the things, if you, now I'm, I, I know I'm fast-forwarding, I'm trying to dump a lot on you, but this is, the, this is the unity and integrity of the Word of God. When you look at the prophets Jeremiah and, and Zephaniah particularly, you know, they may be obscure to you, but both of those are prophesying to the people of Judah right before Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem. And do you know what they quote over and over and over again? Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 36 and following. God said he will do this. If you keep going into idolatry, keep worshiping other gods, the words of Jeremiah are, if you keep whoring after other gods, I will send you into exile. I do not want to do this. And you know what is really interesting when you study? There's a book out that charts all this in significant detail. But the one thing the exile did is it cured the children of Israel of idolatry. When they come back from the exile 70 years later and the rest of their history, they never, ever struggle again with idolatry. God said, I will discipline you. I will do whatever I can do to keep you as my people. See what God's doing. It's, he's putting it up to himself. And he disciplines and shapes and cures them. But look at what they have to go through. What does God's, I know what God had to do in my life to cure me of the habits before 1972 that I had. I know what God had to do. God loves us so much that we make a decision of faith and take that step of faith, and he begins to shape and mold us into what he wants us to be. That's what he did to the children of Israel. All right. So I, I just wanted to refer that to you. And then in chapter um, 29, is, uh, again, we're not going to read all this because of time, but you, you see the, the people of Israel then make this covenant vow to God. We ratify this. We accept this. We will do this. Curses if we do not, blessing if we do. They agree to it. So as I was following this basic little handout I gave you of the ratification of the treaty. What happens when they go into the land at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and Shechem, which is just right across the Jordan River? There they ratify the treaty, they accept it, and they agree to live under its obligation. And that's when the treaty is fully implemented. Uh, Jim, you know, this, this isn't just a matter of rules and procedures, right? I mean, ultimately... He's created us, and he created us for a reason, all, all humanity. And 
in the sense of wanting to have fellowship, why is that important to God and why is that important to us? Well, um, he always asks these real simple questions that I can answer in a sentence. You know, it's like five paragraphs to answer. It's a great question, Fred. I think, let's, first of all, you know, why does God do this? Look, he, he, and this is not a real popular thing to start thinking about 2017, but it, it is the fact and truth of Scripture. God is our creator, and God is is telling us, Genesis 126 and following is a good place to start, I am creating you as human beings in my image. He doesn't create orangutans or whales or sea lions in his image, but humanity, that gives the important ethical value and worth of a human being. But think about that. He creates in his image. Let us create humanity in our image. Male and female, he created them. The worth and value of humanity is established. But as I've told you before, the nature of God as Trinity is the key to this. Because before God created anything, would you say there was love and communion? Did that exist? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. John 5, 19 through 24 says God the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. So that the God who is Trinity has enjoyed love and communion throughout all eternity. When God creates in his image the human race, what does he want? among many other things. The love and communion that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have enjoyed for all eternity, they now want to share with us. That's one of the reasons. God doesn't have any need, but God chooses to create to share what he is with his creation. And so because he's the creator and the lawgiver and everything else, he has every right to say to us, now look, I've created you in my image, and I'm telling you, this is the way you should live your life. If you choose not to live your life this way, I've also made my world in such a way that there are consequences to this. And you just have to choose. So every single day, you make a decision of faith in Christ, you just have to wake up every morning and make a decision. Am I going to walk with God today, or am I going to walk in disobedience and defiance of God today? That's the decision you make. Now, most of us, after you start walking with the Lord for quite a long time, you start saying, I know what my choice is for the day. I'm not going to defy him. I'm going to walk because he has, he has told me, he shared with me, that's the value of studying God's word. He's explained to me the best way for me to live my life. His moral standards are the best standards because he's the creator. To respect the value of private property, don't steal. To respect the value of authority, love your parents, where you learn authority. Um, you know, the, the value of marital intimacy, do not commit adultery. Uh, the value of truth, do not bear false witness. I mean, you just go on, why? Because that's the God, the creator, saying, this is how I want you to live, because they reflect my values and my standards, but if you choose not to follow those, there are consequences to that. That's the way I made my world. But he demonstrates both. He does. He does. He does, exactly. See him make corrections. Yeah, and if you choose not to walk in obedience with him, then 
He is going to, his grace is relentless in pursuing you to get you back. But many, many, many human beings do not want a relationship with God. They just don't want it. I can live my life better. I don't know about you, but I mean, I've, I'm almost 70 years old, and I've been in ministry uh, for quite a few decades, 30-some years. Most of it's been higher education, but I, it is so interesting to me to be with men. I don't work a lot with women on a personal level, but um, to be with men. Some men, I just, I just want to take a two-by-four and slam them against the head. Because honestly, I mean that in, out of love and sincerity. They are ruining their lives. And I've, I've met with many, many guys for hours and hours and just telling there is another way for you to live your life. You do not have to live your life this way. And it's just, it's a guy right now, I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. I, but, you know, you can't force, you can't force a man to make a change in his life. He must want to make that change. And sometimes God has to allow a guy to not only hit bottom, but to crash on through and be looking up at the bottom and then finally cries out for help from God. But, you know, so many men, they, God in his grace turns them around. And then, you know, the other, the other side of your question, I've already sort of alluded to it, but Fred, God is saying to us, as if we're studying the Old Testament and the examples of Israel, or we're studying a character study of King David, we're saying character study of Joseph. God is just saying, I've given you teaching after teaching. Uh, I've given you instruction after instruction. This is the best way to live your life. But it's up to you. God's not, as one of my teachers used to say, God is not a cosmic rapist. He does not force us to love him. So that's my four-minute answer to Fred's little question but it was important. Chapter 24, book of Exodus. Here is another aspect of this ratification and approval and inauguration and institution and implementation and using different words but all, of this covenantal relationship. Now on the board, if, I don't know if you can recognize my writing, that's supposed to be a mountain. Okay? And at the base of the mountain are all the people, and I have a whole bunch of ellipsis points, thousand, 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 thousand people. But we're going to read about this. We're going to read the first couple of verses of chapter 24 are a summary of what happens. And then the rest of the chapter explains to us the details step by step by step. But he's going to give the instructions to 70 elders plus Joshua and several others, total 70. They'll go about halfway up the mountain. But only Moses goes to the peak of the mountain. And that's where Moses will receive the law of God. So this is like, what chapter 24 is like, okay, now we're going to take a break. I want to explain, this is Moses, I want to explain to you how God implemented this. What happens on Mount Sinai where the law is given and the law then is implemented? So, then Moses said, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel. Okay. The he is God said to Moses, come up here, Lord. You, you that's Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu are the sons of Aaron. And then 70 elders. So what do you have? You have Moses plus 73. Got it? 
Got the math figured out? Some of you are looking at me like you're in elementary school and haven't gotten through arithmetic yet. But you are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near. The people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Again, this is a summary. The first four verses are a summary. Everything the Lord said we will do. <laughs> well, sort of, but they really didn't mean it in the sense that, you know, they hear it, they say, yes, Lord, we'll do it. But then living it day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, that's where they have the trouble. And they're going to get into trouble. Verse 4 is very important. And Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. Moses writes it down, and then that's what constitutes the book of Leviticus, parts of Deuteronomy, parts of Numbers. Moses is writing everything down. This is all over these first five books. God keeps telling Moses, write it down, write it down, write it down, write it down. That's what Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those are the five books. He got up early. So now, that's the summary. Now we're going to get to the specific detail of how this happens. He got up early the next morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. There's nothing elaborate about that. It's just 12 stone pillars. Then he sent young Israeli Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Now, the Levitical priesthood has not yet been instituted, so they're just substitute priests. That's all they're doing. Verse 6, Moses took half the blood and put it in the bowls, and the other he splashed it upon the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. Now, we're not exactly sure what this would have looked like, because you're talking about enormous numbers of people. I mean, it, it's very hard to imagine that he went around in every single person. A little hyssop. When I've been to Middle East, I've seen lots. It looks like a brush-like plant that he would have dipped in the blood. That's what the Levitical priest used. So maybe he did it symbolically for each one of the 12 tribes. Or each one, we don't know exactly. But it's the only reference in the entire Bible of God instructing a leader to sprinkle the people with blood. directly. This is the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, that, that, this is really, really important. I want you to think with me about this for just a minute. As a part of this ratification and inauguration ceremony, there is the shedding of animal blood which inaugurates and institutes a covenant. Because the book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. It it seems to be a very, very important part of God's economy in terms of how he deals with sin. Something must die to atone. Atone means cover for sin. Who else 
says almost these exact same words. Jesus does in the upper room. And he says to them, as they're eating the Passover meal, he takes a piece of bread as part of the Passover meal and said, this, you know, just pretend this is bread. This is my body. As you eat it, do so in remembrance of me. And then they eat. Then he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So it's exactly like this. Almost exactly. This is the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus 24, verse 8. In the Upper Room Discourse, John 14 and 15 and 16, this is the inauguration of the New Covenant. Both are inaugurated by shed blood. The shed blood of lambs inaugurates the Old Mosaic Covenant. The shed blood of Jesus Christ inaugurates the New Covenant. Coincidence? or perfect parallel. You see, the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, 37, the new covenant, God puts his law in our hearts and puts his spirit in us because of what Christ does. So it's, it's this is, I, I'm hoping you're following me, I hope you're catching this. This is really an important verse. Verse 24, chapter, uh, chapter 24, verse 8, connecting it with the material that's in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, but also in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul summarizes this as well. It is the shed blood of Christ which inaugurates the new covenant. I happen to think that's kind of cool to see that parallel. Because remember, under the old covenant, under the law, under the Mosaic covenant, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. You've heard of that, haven't you? The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the, the most important part of the temple or tabernacle complex, and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. It's a Day of Atonement. So God has atoned. Atone means cover. God has atoned for sin for another year. So, I mean, whereas the book of Hebrews, we've studied that a couple years ago, the key phrase in the book of Hebrews is Jesus Christ made a once-for-all sacrifice. And the book of Hebrews says, in that mercy seat that's in the eternal, sacred, holy of holies in heaven, he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. Whose blood? Not the blood of a lamb. His own blood. Without the shedding of blood, the idea of to, to, to deal with the curse of sin God has to judge somebody. That's his justice. But at the cross, his mercy, grace, and love meets with his justice. And Jesus satisfies the just, righteous demands of God out of love, grace, and mercy. Now, I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but that's one of those things where you see the integrity of the word of God really coming together. What is... What is symbolized under the old covenant, the death of an animal, the lamb, that's blood is shed, atones for sin for a year, another year, the Lord Jesus does with his own blood forever, once for all. Don't, aren't you glad? I, Peggy and I, my wife and I say this all the time. We are so glad we were born this side of the cross 
We don't have to go to Jerusalem and make sacrifices to have a relationship with God because Jesus did it all. There's an old hymn of the church. I haven't sung that hymn in a church anywhere in the United States where I preached for decades. Jesus paid it all is that old hymn. All to him I owe. But anyway, Fred. Um, when, we, when we receive Christ today, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us, and that's the helper. And he helps us and guides us in our daily lives. What did they have to guide them in their daily life? Because it, it seems so outside of themselves and ceremonial, rather than they didn't have the Holy Spirit at that time. That's right, the Holy Spirit. Well, the, that's a great question. The key element of the Old Testament economy, the Old Testament way of doing things, the Levitical priests. If you go and look, again, you have to look in the book of Joshua to see this, because as you know, the conquest is completed and he divides up the land among the 12 tribes, he also, he also he is, Joshua, establishes the Levitical cities throughout the entire, all of the 12 tribes and their land grants completed. Every Hebrew in the land of Canaan was less than 10 miles from the Levitical city. And the Levites, Fred, were to teach them the law, teach them about God, teach them the the moral obligations they had to him and to one another. And that that Levitical priest is so important in the ancient economy. And like I said, every every Hebrew, no matter where they live, whether in Gad on the east side of the Jordan River or Judah down in the southern part near the Negev, they are to, they're less than 10 miles from the Levitical city. And the Levites are to teach them the law, teach them the ways of God. And that's one of the, that's one of the major themes of the prophets, major and minor. The Levitical priests weren't doing their job. They were not doing what God wanted them to do. And that's why when you look at the book of Judges, for example, the book of Judges blames the failure of that period of time on the Levitical priests. Then when the monarchy is established, there's an additional element. You not only have the Levitical priests, you now have the prophets. Elijah and Elisha are some of the early prophets, but then you just have a whole series of the writing prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12 minor prophets, from Hosea, the first one, all the way to Malachi. They're all, they're speaking for God. They're constantly reminding and teaching and, and encouraging and edifying and exhorting and admonishing. I'm using all the words that are used in the prophets. They knew. It's still a matter. Every morning I wake up, am I going to listen to what Jeremiah is telling me about God? Or am I going to listen to that Canaanite priest on the other side of the mountain telling me about Baal and Astaroth? And you know what happens. Jim, the blood sacrifice in the Old Testament, was that for the remission of sins for the past year or the year to come? Uh, <laughs> it is actually for the year to come. It, really, that's, how they're, that's how they're to see that. But see, that's for the nation. But then, you know, there's that individual. I take my offerings to the Lord, and there were a series of Feasts and a series of uh, times and events during the during the calendar year, where you would go to the tabernacle or later to the temple, and uh, take a lamb or if you were very poor a pigeon or whatever and offer sacrifice. They're burnt offerings, peace offerings. 
in the law, in Leviticus, even um, something extraordinary has happened. God has blessed in such an incredible way in your life, and you just take a very special, voluntary offering to the Lord. Give praise for what he's done for you. So, I mean, it's just, it's really, in my, my, morning, my morning Bible study at 6.30 in the morning, one of the guys asked me, have you ever taught Leviticus? I said, well, yeah, I have once. And he said, I, I always commit to, beginning in January, to read through the Bible in one year. And I'm doing great till I get to Leviticus. So I just said to her, I said, why don't you just skip it? Just skip it. You know, not that he's your, but just skip it. He said, well, will you teach that? Mm. <laughs> if I teach Leviticus, this room will empty quickly. We'll, we'll get, you know, some of it done, and then the rest of you will say, this isn't worth it. So, But anyway, that's... Uh, I will back up just a minute. If, yeah. If I understood you correctly, that it was with Christ where God put aside the law or, or the sacrifice. Fulfilled the law. Fulfilled the law. And the sacrifices. And That's the correct. Sacrifices That's with, correct. With the Spirit? With the... Well, it, well, it fulfilled them in the sense, John, of his, his death, burial, resurrection, and his perfect keeping of the law. He fulfilled it all. So it's done. Okay. And... You, you're right then that what replaces the law, that whole system, is the new covenant. Yeah, okay. And that's where the Holy Spirit, the Holy okay. Spirit is the All key right. sign of the new covenant. Okay, gotcha. Okay. So, you know, this is, now, I mean, men, I'm maybe losing some of you, but what we're doing right here is tying all 66 books of the Bible together. Right? It's really what we're doing. Have I lost, I bet I've lost a lot of you, haven't I? Are you sort of, Joe's sort of with me. But I mean, it's, it's just hard. It, 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 I mean, because I'm really, I'm going over an awful lot here. I don't usually do it quite like this. But some of your questions are generating this. But the, one of the things that when you start to do it this way, you really see an integrity of the Word of God. I mean, this is all interconnected. And that's what I hope at least you're sort of maybe coming away with. All right. Let's go back to 24, verse 9. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Remember, Nadab and Abihu are the sons of Aaron. And the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Now that's problematic. What does that mean? Because Moses is the only one who really talks in them. It must mean they saw the Lord in the cloud. It tells under his feet was something like, it's a simile, like a pavement, a lapis lazuli, and his blue, uh, bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders. They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Bible says in another place, no man sees God and lives. So presumably, because these are similes, they're seeing a manifestation of the glory of God. And that's the, look at this, they sat and ate and drank. Now, I, want to, I just want you to think about this for a minute. This is an illustration of the peace offering. This is what will happen again and again and again in ancient Israel. They will make an offering to God. They will restore the relationship. Then they'll sit down and have a meal. It's the peace offering. They're now at peace with God. Shalom has been achieved. So then you see... Then God said to Moses, verse 12, come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments I've written for instruction. And so then Moses set out with Joshua his aide. The first time Joshua is mentioned in the Bible. 
Joshua is going to become a really key figure. And Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you, and anyone involved in dispute can go to them. They'll settle all the disputes among the people while I'm up on the mountain. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain. On the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of God, the Lord looked like a consuming fire. Notice again these similes on the top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud. As he went into the, up to the mountain, he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I want to give a summary of what happens in the next several chapters. Chapter 24 is a summary of a lot that goes on over a period of time. But it's telling us that it is only Moses who goes to the peak and has intimate fellowship with God as he gives him the law. Where are the 73? Here. And somewhere in between here and there is Joshua. The people are down here. Now, next week, because we're almost out of time, I do want to do a couple more things. But next week, what I want to do is, okay, what happens to all the people down here while Moses is up there for 40 days and 40 nights? Yeah, they, I mean, what's going to happen is they're going to construct an alternative system. And that will be the, the golden idols, the bulls, and all that stuff. And what is amazing is Aaron gets involved in this. Uh, so, uh, again, chapter 24 is and mixing that with Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, etc. The people are accepting ratifying, agreeing to the law, and Moses is inaugurating this entire covenantal relationship by the sprinkling of the blood, which as I tried to draw some connection to the New Testament as well. All right, now, um, there have been questions. It's, it's almost 20 up, so we still have time, and I want to introduce this next section uh, with you, but are there any questions I just have the feeling, you don't look like you have a haze over your face or your eyes, but I'm wondering how many of you are really lost, because we've covered an awful lot here, but feel free to ask me questions here or anything. Rob? I think I was here last week, but I I, I feel a a break. I'm not sure how to handle that. I I understand what you're talking about today, but it seems to be a disconnect from last week. That could be on me, because I'm not really keeping up with it. Okay, last week we were finishing the Sabbath laws and we did the festivals and so on. So that was like that topic and now it's like two separate. So there naturally should be a little bit of a disconnect because it's two separate things we're dealing with. Yeah, yeah. And you, that reminds me, I'd like to interject a five-second bunny trail. Yeah, well. Yesterday I, I was at a, a celebration of the 50th anniversary of the reunification of Jerusalem which they pointed out happened to be the Jubilee of the 50th. And I, I just remember somebody teaching us that one time. We did. What a Jubilee year was. Yeah, we, we went through a little bit of that. Pardon? We did go through a little bit of that last week or the week before. So do you want me to go over that again? Is that what you mean? Or do you, do you no, remember no, that? Because that is, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. It is hard to believe that that was just a coincidence. Yeah, it really is hard to believe that was a coincidence. Yes, Woody. Um, as I understand it, the Ten Commandments were written on a... Tablets of stone. Tablet, right? 
Correct. And then we talk about the other laws, and other things that God wants them to do. Was that all written somewhere, like on that? Mentioned the plaster. Uh, that, would okay. they write more than the Ten Commandments? Yes, they, they would. Yes, they would. Uh, and that is la- that's la- as we studied in t- chapter 27. Is Moses saying, when you go into the land, this is what I want you to do. What usually is assumed here, Woody, is they're writing in summary um, though the details of what God expects of them, which really is the law of God and all its details, each one of the Ten Commandments is just further explained. What does it mean that I should not kill intentionally with malice of forethought? And in the law, it just gives you example after example after example after example of if, if you take a life, what does that mean? What happens to me? What do I do? If I take somebody's life and unintentionally, it's an accident. Is there an obligation? Yes. If I cause a woman to miscarry, and uh, she's pregnant, and I hit her unintentionally. It was an accident, and she miscarries. Am I accountable for that? Yes, you are. You don't lose your life, but you're accountable for that. You've taken, you've caused a human being made in my image to die. That's important to me. So I, all these laws that, to- that's correct. That's correct. And it would all be written down. Now, I want to go back to, I think it was Fred's question. I want to go back. How were the people from one generation to the next generation to the next generation, how are the people to learn and be held accountable in all of these covenantal obligations? The answer is what I gave to Fred, I think it was. It's Levitical priests. Levitical priests are to teach this to the people. And the parents, Deuteronomy 6, the parents working with the priests, are to just teach this over and over and over and over again to the children <coughs> and then to the adult. In a good Christian family, that should be done. Exactly. Well, really, this, exactly, exactly. That is exactly, that hasn't changed. Paul tells us the same thing in, in Ephesians 6 and in Colossians 3. Parents, teach your children the things of God. Raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's exactly the same thing as in Deuteronomy 6. So, I mean, it's, and what happens to a civilization if parents, in Israel, parents and Levitical priests don't do it? Read the narratives of the Old Testament. That shows you what happens when they don't do it. I mean, it's just, it's not rocket science in that sense. God is saying, this is what I want you to do. I'm I'm instructing my leaders to teach you this again and again and again and hold you accountable. But if they don't do it, then the system will collapse. And that's exactly what happened. And you and I are living in a civilization. Now, this is a broad stroke statement. I don't think it applies to anybody in this room and probably a lot of your friends. But we're living in a civilization, generally speaking, which does not see it important for parents to teach morals, ethics, and standards and hold their children accountable. Generally speaking. One of the fundamental breakdowns that we have eliminating the Bible from school is to eliminate a third of the reason our founders uh, promoted public education, not not government run that necessarily, but public education and their support for it. They believed that education was to teach three things, religion, morals, and then other things. General knowledge. The, the 
things that are the mechanics of the things that it takes. We're we're losing that, and and, and I I guess I think of that. I, I'm I, I'm I don't know if I want to read that larger volume, but I I'm very interested in Francis Fitzgerald. Well, it's it's really a fine book uh, in in that sense, but I want to I want to do this real quickly if I can. And this is, uh, people who don't give a hoot about Christianity would agree with this. The public education system of the United States, the Northwest Ordinance of 1795 was the first example of this. Northwest Territories were what's today, Oregon, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, all that. They were the Northwest Territories before the United States uh, acquired them. Uh, they were in the process of being integrated into the new nation after they wrote the Treaty of Great Britain after the, after the American Revolution. The public educational system was to be, de was to be devised on three pillars. <clears throat> or let's make it a triangle. That's easier to draw on a board. <clears throat> Those three pillars were the family, the church, or let's just you know, put it Religious, I thought that was an alarm or something. Religious institution. And then the school itself, which is a public school. Uh, the Northwest Order, 1795, they divided up and surveyed all the land and say each, uh, on each section, one of those townships in that section is to be sold and to support a public school in that section. It's amazing. They, they, this is what we want, this is how we're going to finance it, and it is to be based on the family, the church, and the school, public school, funded by tax money. This is how it's to work. And what are you to teach? You're to teach values, you're to teach ethics, and you're then to teach the skills of living, which, you know, arithmetic, reading, all those kinds of things. But please notice that. But you see, these two things will be reinforced by this, and this, is that the way the school system in the United States in 2017 looks? No, not at all. Not at all. This is gone, and this is gone in terms of this. I mean, it really, it, it's gone. And so it's, 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 it's highly disconnected. And so therefore, my daughter's been, she taught fifth grade, now she's reading coordinator in District 66. But this is an enormous problem. Because so many parents and families aren't really interested in their kids. That it's not interested in it. And so you can't, you, you know, Joanna said you can't get them to help. You can't get them to reinforce what we're doing. You can't, you can't get them to take the obligation of reading with their kids. They just don't do it. Well, alone this element. So, I mean, our founders, and this isn't necessarily based on just Christianity. It's just saying... If we want to build what Jefferson and Adams used to call a republic of virtue, this is the important key to it. If we want to build a republic of virtue, so what's happened to our republic of virtue? And this is, this is exactly, and again, people who don't even care about Christianity will, will say that's the way it used to be. And that is very, very much what we're seeing in the Old Testament. The Old Testament would say, we're going to have an education, not you know, not big buildings. Like, we're going to have an education where the family and and the Levitical priests are going to be intersecting constantly to equip, train, 
and takes the kids' values, ethics, and skills for a living. You know, this, this, this isn't rocket science. It's a basic, fundamental, and wise way to train each generation of leaders to do what you want to happen. And uh, that's, that's the saddest thing in my life. I'm almost 70 years old. The saddest thing in my life, because I've been in higher education almost my entire life, is to see the breakdown of all this. And it's just, it's just, and it's really hard to see it in any way being renewed. Jim, within the context of the family, men, men should lead, the husband should lead and provide an environment, whether they end up being the, the teacher in all situations is another question, but they should at least, we men, husbands, fathers, should at least provide the environment that allows that teaching to take place of values and ethics and what you're talking about. Uh, it's a very sexist question, Fred, but it, you're basically right. <laughs> and the family, and it, it's not, I mean, you wouldn't have to be a sexist to say, I no. want my wife to take this responsibility yeah. if she's willing yeah, to. To make sure that it is occurring, yes. regardless of how it occurs, but to make sure it's occurring. Now, I... Uh, we've got to quit here. I hope you didn't mind me going down this bunny trail a little bit, but this is um, this is really important to me. But it's also it's reflecting what we're seeing and what we're studying in the Old Testament. They were to take all this really seriously, and if they didn't take it seriously, they would then see the consequences. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll we'll, we'll be going. Okay. Next week, I want to I'll talk a little bit about the tabernacle. Then I want to talk about what was happening when Moses was up in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Lord, thank you for our study today. We really got off the subject in a couple areas. I am um, responding to some of the questions and just what I did here just a minute ago. Lord, I hope that was okay. If I said anything that was not of your spirit, would you dismiss it from our minds, but help us to focus on the things that are true and, and worthwhile and noteworthy of what you want to teach us through your word. As Jim, uh, early on our time this morning, asked a very important question. How do we take, what do we take away from this for today? And certainly, at, amongst so many other things, there are principles, there are values, there are strategies that were as much a part of ancient Israel as they should be today. What parents do, what religious leaders do, parents, Levitical priests in the ancient world, uh, parents and the local religious institution, they're, they're extremely important in training and equipping children, to be the leaders of the next generation. And if all that breaks down, we should not be surprised when we see dysfunction and lots of hurt and pain. And we see an awful lot of that today. So, Lord, you've made it clear the best way to live when we choose to follow that. Uh, we will experience the wonderful common glacial blessings. If we choose not to follow it, we will also see the dysfunction that results. Lord, we're men that are serious about our faith. I assume that's true or they wouldn't be here. We're serious about our faith. We're serious about allowing you to build in our faith, to grow us in our faith. Help us to be men of God in all we do and say, because the bottom line is, quite honestly, Lord, we represent you, and we want to do that well and with integrity. Help us to do that based on the new covenant blessings of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and the encouragement we receive from one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lord willing, we'll see you next week.